In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I am excited to welcome on songwriter Valerie Vigoda. Now, you might remember Valerie's name being mentioned in a prior episode with Brendan Milburn, as the two of them were songwriter collaborators, and Valerie's going to be here to talk about her musical career and many projects that she has worked for under the Walt Disney Company, including Toy Story the Musical, many of the Tinkerbell films, and work for the Disney theme parks. So let's get right into the conversation with Valerie Vigoda. As her website states, Valerie Vigoda unites music, storytelling, and technology in a very invigorating manner. She serves as a songwriter, performer, electric violinist, educator, public speaker. You wear many hats. Valerie's musical background is both extensive and far-ranging. On the Disney front, Valerie and musical collaborator Brendan Melbourne, um, who we had on a previous episode of Notably Disney, co-wrote songs for Toy Story the Musical, uh, the Tinkerbell films, even tunes that you might hear in the Disney theme parks. So I'm really thrilled to have Valerie on Notably Disney to talk about her musical roots, career, and work for Disney. So welcome to Notably Disney, Valerie. Thank you, Brett. It is a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm hoping we can kind of travel into the past and learn more about your musical background. I know that you come from a very musical family, and I'm hoping that you can share with me and listeners a little bit about their influence and your own drive that have ultimately guided your trajectory. Sure. Well, I I grew up with um, my father at the piano. My father is a wonderful jazz pianist, and for his career, he has been the first call sort of society pianist in Washington. So he would play at a party and there would be Republicans and Democrats who didn't like each other and he would suss out the room and five minutes would go by and they'd all be singing together arm in arm, like songs they didn't even remember that they knew. So uh, he was a, and he is still, 
a full encyclopedia of pop music from Irving Berlin to Billy Joel. And so I grew up with that. I would sit next to him on the piano bench and he would go through songbooks with me. Um, and we would, I learned how to sight read at his side. We would sing through Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. And it was a wonderful just music education by osmosis with him. And his father, my grandfather, was an amazing cantor, a singer of Jewish liturgical music. And he was a... Uh, RCA gold record artist way back when, and a very much of a rock star among Orthodox Jews <laughs> with just a beautiful golden tenor voice. Wow. And the musicianship goes back beyond his generation, also his father, and you know, way back cantors and singers and musicians. So my whole father's side of the family has um, just been steeped in music. Wow. So really, it it goes back many generations, indeed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and let's see. My my mom was a, a wonderful appreciator of music and um, loved to sing. And so it, we there was a lot of music in my in my childhood for sure. Um, and when I was about eight years old, I wanted to play an instrument and the instrument I wanted to play was the trumpet but because I had just lost my baby teeth I wasn't allowed to play the trumpet so they told me that I'd have to wait a year till my teeth grew in or I could start playing violin right away and so to an eight-year-old one year seems like forever <laughs> so I started playing the violin and I took to it and I loved it and uh, became pretty serious about it quickly and so throughout the rest of elementary school and middle school and high school, um, that was a big part of my life. I would go to summer music camp and um, just was identified as a classical violinist for a long time. Um, and I always continued loving to sing. and was always in choir. Um, but it wasn't really until later, like until college and beyond, that I wanted to combine them. That I started wanting to write songs and to want to also use my violin in there. And as much as I loved classical music, it wasn't what I was listening to. It wasn't what I was really drawn to. Um, I loved, you know, partly because of, of my dad's influence, I loved the, the people who could just write a beautiful lyric. And in pop music, my, like one of my first loves was Billy Joel. And I got all of his albums and I just loved him. And it was my first concert that I went to. Um, and I still love him. I love his ability to take a very, very specific story or situation and write it so that it resonates with you, even if it's about a completely different kind of person with a different kind of lifestyle. Um, <clears throat> and oh, there, there are many favorites. Shall I go on? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, okay. One of my questions was about musical influences. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Um, well, he's a big one for sure. Um, Let's see, I've, I, I was a big Dan Fogelberg fan for a long time. Um, James Taylor, Joe Jackson, um, Sean Colvin, Jonathan Brooke is a big favorite. Um, yes. Patty Griffin, Tori Amos, um, people who like are very vivid with their words. I think I've always been very drawn to words first, even before the sound of music. Um, and the great lyricists like Sondheim, Howard Ashman, Frank Lesser, Yip Harburg, Dorothy Fields, um, 
Cole Porter, Larry Hart, Stephen Schwartz. Um, I think Jason Robert Brown's a great lyricist. Um, yeah, that's kind of the lens through which I, I first get excited about something is through the words. So it sounds like a lot of different types of artists and lyricists have influenced your background and also what you have ultimately created. Can you talk about what your early experiences were like in actually developing lyrics for for pieces? Um, You mean like the very first songs I ever wrote or like the first songs for for hire? Yeah, so... Really, either or. I'm I'm interested in knowing, like, what were some of the earliest songs that you created? What were they focused on, and, and how did you come about that, that oh, process? Well, I, I I don't think I'm alone in this, but I I started writing songs that were very personal, you know, about boyfriends and breakups, and I think the f- title of the first song I ever wrote was um, uh, "Would You Fall in Love with Me One More Time." <laughs> I would write my songs in the dark by myself um, at a, usually at a piano. Um, and I'm, I'm not a pianist. I, I'm a, I'm a you know, mediocrely capable <laughs> keyboard player, but that's what I would sit there and, you know, very journalistically and very, um, very much about my own experience. And <clears throat> I think that that works well for a while. And, I created my first album mostly that way, uh, which was very personal. It's called Inhabit My Heart. And after I created that, which was kind of like the sound of it is like Sarah McLaughlin with a violin. So um, it's a little bit folky. It's a little bit mellow. And I moved to New York um, with that as the first thing that I did. And I knew I wanted to write songs. I knew I wanted to play the violin with it. I wasn't really into electric violin so much yet. But um, when I moved to New York and started doing gigs, I surrounded myself with a large group of people, right? So that I wouldn't, I I was a little insecure, you know? (laughs) So I had backup singers. Uh, My dad would drive up from Virginia to play gigs with me. And... um, that's where I began. And it was very soon after the beginning of, of that process that I met up with Brendan Milburn and he came to one of my first gigs and we connected right away and we connected on music first and started um, playing together, writing together. And then we eventually started dating as well. And the influence of not only Brendan, but everybody else that was in um, his friends that were also at graduate school at NYU for writing for the theater were a huge influence on on me because the difference was instead of just writing songs by yourself in your room um, and once you're done with them, they're done, right? You do one draft and there it is. Um, For the first time, I was around people who would critique each other and then they would they would do rewrites and it was a completely different way of looking at music and uh much less precious right it's like what do you mean you know i wrote this it's you know it's my baby it's done and um it was a wonderful education to be in this crowd of people who 
didn't really get attached egoically to the, their drafts of their songs, but they wanted to make it the best that it could be. And we, and um, I became part of a songwriter circle. We would meet every week and we would shred each other's work, <laughs> kind of like they did at NYU. And it was great <laughs> because I, st- I, I, I lost my attachment and I, I started to understand the value of rewrites. Um, even, you know, <laughs> more than the, you know, you gotta have a first draft, but the rewrites are where the, where the magic often is. And so I, I learned that in New York and it really, really helped me. I can imagine being in that type of space was also very fruitful because of the notion of being so close to Broadway and musicals and up and coming musicians. What, what was that like in terms of getting ideas or, or connecting with individuals who were in this type of mm-hmm. scene? Well, it was it was wonderful. I mean, I had always been a fan of theater music and theater. Um, I remember the first Broadway show that I got to go to was with my parents. We got to see the original Sweeney Todd, and I just fell in love with with Sondheim. But it had never occurred to me to be part of that scene. Like I was just like my my whole ambition. Was, I was I loved singer songwriters. It was around the time of Lilith Fair, and you know, female singer songwriters were were coming out and emerging as uh, viable. <laughs> and I I loved that whole scene. My ambition was to be that, and so it was really through encountering uh, Brendan and the NYU people and that theater world um, that my eyes started to be open to the possibility, not just of enjoying theater and loving it, but also, oh, creating it perhaps. (laughs) Um, But that still took a while. Like we, um, you know, I had my band, the Valerie Vigoda band. And then we, when it became more of a collaborative entity, it became Groove Lily. And then Mm -hmm. we were a trio with uh, me on the electric violin and Brendan on the keyboards and Jean Lewin, who I had known from college on drums. And we toured relentlessly as an indie band. So we were on the road constantly um, trying to be a rock band, trying to get signed to a major label, doing all that stuff. And we played colleges and clubs and festivals and everything, (laughs) concert series. Um, Doing it's so interesting. It's so original. We love the sort of storytelling aspect of it, but it's, you're too theater for us. You're too Broadway. (laughs) We can't sign you. We can't help you. Um, and, you know, all three of us had had theater background. Jean uh, in college was a, was a member of the Triangle Club, which I also participated in in my senior year, um, where they do original musicals. And it was just sort of in our blood, but we were not being fully true to ourselves. And it wasn't until we did a showcase for the people at NYU who were bringing back alumni of the theater writing program that Brendan had been in and showcasing them. So we came as a band and we did a showcase. And through that, we met Ted Sperling, a wonderful director, music director. And he accosted us and said, I am the new associate artistic director of the Prince Music Theater in Philadelphia. And I have to program next season. He said, what do you got? <laughs> um, and, <Wow. laughs> you know, Brendan was the only one of us who had ever written musicals before. And he said, well, I've been, I'm in a band. I haven't been writing musicals for, for years. Um, and, and he said, well, can you have something by next November? This was, uh, I believe it was either December, 2001 or January, 2002. And he's like, uh, I want you guys to do the holiday show. <laughs> 
And actually, let me back up for a second. The, uh, while, while we were this indie band, Groove Lily, um, there were times when I would take side gigs and go out on the road and uh, just to bring in extra money, et cetera. So I did that with Cindy Lauper. I did that with Joe Jackson, who had always been one of my <laughs> songwriting idols. Um, and I also did that with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So I was the concert mistress of the West Coast Trans-Siberian Orchestra in 2001. Uh, I played with them 2000 and 2001. And Brendan came to see the show. And if you're familiar with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, then you know that it's a big, giant, bombastic rock holiday show, Christmas show with a narrator and a bit of a story. And it's incredibly popular. You know, people that are four years old, people that are 84 years old, you know, people come and they bring their families. And it's something that it's an alternative to the Nutcracker and other usual holiday fare. And so Brendan came to see that show. And he started thinking, he was like, wow, okay, this is working really well for these people. We could do our own Groove Lily concert with a story for the holidays. And so he sort of had this in his mind. And through the NYU showcase, we were then uh, introduced to Rachel Schenken, wonderful book writer and playwright. And before she won her Tony Award for the Putnam County Spelling Bee show. And we talked to her about this. We gave her our latest album, which is called Little Light. And the title track of that so uh, album is all about keeping the flame of your passion alive, even in the midst of a rainstorm. And it was very metaphorical. And so as she talked to us about the idea of doing a holiday show and the idea, um, and the Little Light song was percolating in her mind, she had the idea of the Little Match Girl. And she said, it reminded me of that. And, and how about New Year's Eve? Because it's not a Christmas specific show, which was great with us. Um, and it's not, you know, religiously oriented in any way. Let's do a secular holiday, New Year's Eve. And so for the year of 2002, which was a crazy year of 150 Groove Lily gigs, we were driving around in our van. Oh, we wow. wrote Striking 12, which was our first musical. And I had never written a musical before. I had, <laughs> I had written a lot of songs. I'd seen a lot of theater. Um, and cell phone coverage was not nearly as good as it is now. And so we would try to have phone calls with Rachel as we're driving, you know, to Texas <laughs> for a gig. And it was, it was, uh, it was spotty, but, um, but we did it. So we create, we created this concert with a story and um, Rachel beautifully had the idea of playing to our strengths by um, allowing us to be ourselves in one part of the show. So we were not trained actors necessarily. We're good performers, um, but hadn't really had a lot of practice acting. And so it became a three-level story. You know, one level where we are the band, one level where we are contemporary New York characters reacting um, to the third level, which was the little match girl. And if you remember, the little match girl is a very, very sad story where the little girl is out selling matches in the snow. It's in 1840s right. Denmark. And uh, she is cold and miserable. She lights the matches and she has these visions of a beautiful feast and of her grandmother who has passed away. Um, and, and at the end of, of the little match girl, this short 
dismal story. She dies. <laughs> she freezes to death. And so our characters, you know, we, we go back and forth in time between ourselves as the band, and then we have these uh, contemporary New York characters who react to the story. Brendan's character was the grumpy guy who's had a horrible year. He's been about to be fired from his job. He's lost his fiance. And my character is the light bulb saleswoman who comes to his door selling special light bulbs that combat seasonal affective disorder. And he has, wants nothing to do with, <laughs> with me. And he says, yeah, what are you, the little light bulb girl? This reminds him of Hans Christian Andersen. He gets out his handy dandy book and he begins to read The Little Match Girl. And then we're into that story. And so this became this quirky, funny, um, heartfelt, three-person musical. And we premiered it in 2002, November, at the Prince Music Theater with Ted directing. And it was like a miracle <laughs> for us. So we had been used to driving and driving and driving and doing everything ourselves as an indie, as an indie band, right? We had to do the promo ourselves. We had to bring the sound system. We had to ever, you know, create everything. And in the theater, all of a sudden, we four weeks, we were in one place. We only had to set up the drums once. <laughs> there was a theater with infrastructure and promotion and the all the reviewers from Philadelphia, all the newspapers all came to the show and <laughs> all reviewed it. And it was just this amazing serendipity where all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is what we should be doing, right? People keep telling us we're too Broadway, too theater. Okay, let's be, th let's be theater. And that show really started our, uh, our career in the world of theater and theater writing. Um, we did it in 2002. We did it in 2003 in San Diego at the Old Globe. We did it in 2004 in Silicon Valley at TheaterWorks, 2005 um, off, off Broadway at Ars Nova. And then 2006, we were off Broadway uh, at the Daryl Roth. And there was a rave review from the New York Times and we were kind of off and running. And that is a very long answer to your question. <laughs> I think I may have uh, veered around a little bit. No, that's quite all right. How fa fascinating. <laughs> and it, it sounds like that really served as a not only a springboard for a lot of other productions and projects you'd be involved in, but really also a, a, a shift of sorts in terms of what, what type of work you'd be engaging in. Exactly. And it also, like, that whole period from 2002 um, through the next couple of years, we were pretty burned out from the life of an indie band, right? Like, we were making a living. We were, you know, doing it, you know, <laughs> uh, and that was success in many ways. But there was also this, like, this glass ceiling that we had never been able to get above. We were driving so much, and we wanted to be home more. We wanted to have a baby. We wanted to, you know, have a family and and stop the the grind of all that driving. And so this theater direction came at such a beautiful time for us and um, there was one very very specific moment that shifted a lot of things for us which was 2004 um, in October we were part of the NAMPT festival so the Nas National Alliance of Musical Theater has this wonderful festival every year where they showcase eight musicals and we were chosen to be one of those and it was a 45 minute cut down version 
Um, and they're very strict about it. <laughs> they, if you go over 45 minutes, they gong you off the stage, basically. <laughs> very, very strict uh, timing. And we were there at New World, New World Stages. And we were sitting there at our, you know, standing at our instruments, ready to go. So we would be exactly on time. And to us, it was just another showcase. We had done so many unsuccessful showcases for the music industry, record, produ- you know, managers, record label people, A&R, people. like it was for us, we were, we were so blasé. We were like, oh yeah, whatever. It's another showcase. <laughs> like, we could not be less nervous because <laughs> we didn't expect anything to come from it at all. And, but we didn't know that in that audience were so many movers and shakers of the theater world. We just didn't know. Um, we were a little bit naive about that. And so the people in the audience saw us with our instruments and they were waiting for the actors to come out. You know, they thought we were the band and then there were going to be the actors that come out and do the show. And then we did the show and it was all us. And we did a great job. We were, you know, we were having fun with it. And the people in that audience stormed our agent's table. Like it was it was amazing because not only was it a, a show that was working and it was moving um, as well as being funny, but for them, it was it cheap to produce, right? There's three people. They're the band. They're the actors. They're everything, right? And so um, they sort of descended upon us. And that was where that particular moment was where we um, were connected with a, a bunch of different opportunities, not only performing, but also writing commissions. Um, and among that audience was Matt Almost from Disney. And that's how mm-hmm. we first got associated with them. And it was two years later, 2006, when he contacted us about the Toy Story project. Well, let's kind of shift into that. And I smiled earlier when you said that one of your earlier musical influences was Sarah McLachlan, because we all know how she was responsible for singing the When She Loved Me song from Toy Story 2. Ah, yes. And such a beautiful piece and very much in that singer-songwriter realm. So shifting into Toy Story, because I feel like everything is connected, Mm -hmm. and you and Brendan being responsible for developing original music for uh, Toy Story musical on Disney Cruise Line. So I guess I'm wondering what particular challenges and opportunities did you embrace in having this platform to develop original tunes? Um, It was... (laughs) So, first of all, I have loved Toy Story since the moment it came out. And in fact, it was one of the first dates that we ever went on, Brendan and I, was to see Toy Story um, at its original inception and it was just so well put together and so heartfelt and so beautiful that when the idea when the phone call came to possibly be part of it we were just beside ourselves with joy just (laughs) jumping up and down for the for the for the opportunity and we had to compete for it um i think there were three teams um being considered and we each had to come up with an opening number and then there was a long time frame um, during which we uh, were not actually the first team chosen, but about six months later, we got the call that we were going to, if we wanted the gig, we could have it. And we were thrilled. Um, And we knew that the task was going to be to integrate the style of Randy Newman 
because they were going to use at least one song from that. You know, You've Got a Friend in Me was absolutely going to be part of the show. And the score had to fit in with, with his sound. And we loved Randy Newman. That was not too hard to, <laughs> to do for us. And um, so the, the entire experience was hilarious and beautiful. Um, it all, also, a lot of it is a little bit of a blur. Um, our son, Mose, was born in 2005, and he did not sleep through the night for three and a half years. And so oh, no. there was not a full night of sleep ever during this whole <laughs> during this whole experience. Um, but I do remember quite a bit. Um, let's see. Okay, so the so Toy Story on the Disney Wonder was the most ambitious cruise ship musical to date. Since then, there have been a few musicals that have gone beyond it. Um, <clears throat> but at the time, nothing that large had, had been attempted. And <clears throat> so if you look back at the DVD of Toy Story, um, John Lasseter, who created, the, who created it, said something like, with Toy Story, I wanted to make an animated feature that wasn't a musical. And exactly. Yeah. And so the idea that was being put forth to him that they wanted to do Toy Story the musical was something that he was you know, deeply suspicious of. <laughs> and so our job was to put together, was to convince him, basically. And so we met in Brooklyn. We lived in Brooklyn at the time. And so the first meeting of the creative team was at our house. And <clears throat> so it was Stefan Novinsky, our director, and um, me and Brendan and Matt Almos, who was in, in charge of us. Uh, I think Anne Klaus Farley, our, our designer, was there too. And Mindy, our book writer. And we started song spotting and figuring out where in the story the songs would go. And we just kept figuring that out over the period of a, the, the next months. And it was 2007 when we had our first workshop. And I think it was just three days. We had wonderful, wonderful actors um, like Wade McCollum, who uh, would become a very important person to, to me and my later show. Um, and we had a performance and I think it was 7.30 in the morning for John Lasseter. And his schedule was so packed, he could only come super early in the morning. And, you know, we, we heard he was saying, you know, they want me to look at a possible toy story, but it's never going to happen. <laughs> so we do the performance. And at the end of it, Lasseter, John Lasseter just jumped up from his chair. There were tears on his face. And he hugged Wade he hugged Noel, who was playing Buzz, and just said, "What he sings?" <laughs> he was. It was like he was surprised to be so won over. But it was. It was this beautiful moment of him being so thrilled and excited that this was going to work, um, and he, he was just nothing but kind, magnanimous, generous the entire way. We had a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, and he had such 
love for and ownership of the story. So he was very, very particular about a lot of things like, you know, the size of the buttons and the way the eyes looked and all lots of visuals. Um, sure. And he really allowed us to do our work. You know, he, um, it, it was, it was, it was wonderful just to, to go from that, you know, we don't know if this is going to happen or not to just the full on support. Um, and we had a bunch of rewrites over, over the, over those next months. Um, Chris Montan, who was head of, head of music at yeah, Disney, Disney. Yeah. Gave amazing notes to us. Like we had the first song that we wrote for Buzz Lightyear was called Yes, I Can. And it was a good song. And we did the workshop performance with it. And he immediately said, well, you know, that's, that's okay, but you can do better than that. This, you know, this has got to be an you know, anthem of Buzz Lightyear. It's got to be about, you know, what does he say to infinity and beyond, right? And in hindsight, right. it's so obvious. Like, of course, we should write a song called To Infinity and Beyond. Um, that would be Buzz Lightyear's big song. And But it took Chris Montan to be an outside ear to tell us that. Um, let's see. Ooh, what else can I tell you? The the Sid song. Sid. It was very important to John Lasseter that Sid not be a horrible villain, right? That he not be a bad person, but just that, misunderstood, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that he's an artist, right? He's somebody that you know he's not content to just have his toys the way they are. He's gonna create something new, you know. And so from that concept, that's uh, where we came up with him as an art, you know, him calling himself the Da Vinci of destruction and the Van Gogh of violence, um, which was so fun to write. We weren't sure we were going to get away with it, but we totally did. And um, the note that yeah. John, John Lasseter had for that was uh, we had originally written it as, for some reason, it was like a bossa nova type sound. And he heard it and he was like, well, I like this idea, but it's got to be heavy metal. It's got to be like a rock song. And so we yeah, changed it and absolutely. it was way better. So, Valerie, I know you also wanted to highlight some of your other collaborators and folks you worked with on Toy Story the Musical. Could you uh, share some of the individuals you enjoyed working with? Yes, absolutely. Well, the, 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 I absolutely must mention Annie Hamburger, who really started all of this, right? She was the executive VP of, of DCE, of Disney Creative Entertainment, and she came from the multimedia, documentary, you know, site-specific theater world. And she she runs this wonderful company, On Guard Arts. And she was the one to really bring New York theater artists into parks and into the ships. And her idea was to really create Broadway-caliber Broadway work in those areas. And so she spearheaded all of this. And she brought in Matt Olmos, who brought in us after seeing us perform an excerpt of our first musical, Striking 12, at the National Alliance of Musical Theater at NAMPT. And so you really have Annie to thank for all of this happening. And let's see. I think I'm... I definitely mentioned that Wade McCollum was our first Woody in the workshop and then became a very important collaborator for, for me later on. And there were several other wonderful actors during the process. We had Will Collier, we had Daniel Tater, and then the incredible Jeffrey Tyler, who became Woody on the ship 
And so it's his performance that, that you can see on the, the video that is out there now on the cruise ship blog. And <clears throat> the only actor that stayed with us through the whole process and then onto the ship also was Noel Orput, who played Buzz. And he embodied Buzz so beautifully from day one. We were just thrilled that he agreed to not only do all the workshops with us, but then go on to be on the ship. So he's the uh, the other lead who's on that video. He's amazing. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thanks for highlighting those folks as well. Indeed, it, it seems like it was a, a major undertaking. And as you said earlier, this was the most ambitious project for Disney Cruise Line up to, up until that point. So it required a lot of people to, to make this project a reality. Yeah, I mean, to, to create a one-hour musical based on a property that already exists, in some ways you wouldn't think it would take so many people, but it is by far the largest musical production that I've worked on. And there are so many people and so many contributions. The, the sheer enormity of trying to put this larger-than-life show into a venue that was not larger than life. I mean, it was a, you know, a lovely ship, um, but there were so, so many constraints. Um, there was a very um, limited physical footprint, and the show had to also coexist with uh, at least two other shows at the same time. So that, exactly. yeah, so everything had to be foldable. Huge um, challenges for both, well, for everyone, but specifically for Anne, Klaus Farley, and for Sybil Wickersheimer, our amazing set designer. Uh, <clears throat> And they had to make everything fit. So they did that. <laughs> but, uh, but it was so, so tight um, that I remember there was a scene that was written that was supposed to be, that Mindy had written, that was going to cover a set change that was going to be out in one. So, right, so in front of the curtain. And it was sure, a scene somewhere in the middle of the show with Rex and Mr. Potato Head and maybe Slinky. And they were going to be talking about, you know, what it's like back at the house you know, with you know, uh, Woody gone and blah, blah, blah. And they physically could not get the costumes to enter from the side that way. They just couldn't. There was no way to get them to come out. So we had to just cut the scene. And so the, the venue completely dictated the writing in some cases. And I think the solution there was to just figure out a way to use somebody who was human size to come out rather than somebody who was a giant puppet. Um, let's see. I can imagine because there, you, you know, you mentioned the notion of all the constraints and I was thinking to myself, like the slinky dog uh, uh, costume, well, it was basically humongous. It encompassed such a big part of the stage. Yeah. It was two people, right? Somebody, uh, you know, there there are actors now on their their resumes. Uh, one of their credits is Slinky Butt. <laughs> right, I was going to say <laughs> back half of Slinky. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> but there there were just many constraints, right? Like the fly the flying had to be pretty minimal, just because they didn't have the technological ability to 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 do something like. Uh, for example, the magic carpet in Aladdin. Sure. Uh, there was nothing like that, so that there, you know, we had to make the flying work, um, and Stefan did an amazing job with that. Um, <clears throat> we used projections, I think, in a in a in a good way. 
for for some of those. And um, part of the process that, well, first of all, an amazing moment. Um, The person that was in charge of all the recordings of, of the tracks, Matt Walker, we met him through this project and he has been a wonderful um, champion and uh, he's hired us many, many times to do things since, since this project, but this is where we first met him. And it was the first time that our work was recorded in such a magnificent way, like with the resources of Disney behind us. (laughs) It was mind blowing that we had, Lee Sklar and Russ Kunkel and these incredible iconic musicians that we'd grown up listening to on records, they're playing our songs, you know? Um, it was amazing, right? And, and the, the, the real voices of, of you know, Wallace Shawn and <laughs> the, um, the members of the original cast of Toy Story singing our music too. Um, right. And an incredible, you know, top first call brass section playing to infinity and beyond, which is our tribute to John, you know, the John Williams style. And when they came to the session, the recording session, they had been playing, it was in the night at nighttime and, or during the entire day, those brass players had been playing John Williams. So they were really tired of you know, the trumpet players, their mouths <laughs> were exhausted. <laughs> they were like, what? We have to play more like this. Uh, but they, you know, they were, just first class musicians, right? The string section, you know, first call LA, LA uh, string players. Um, it, it was just gorgeous to be part of that. Um, the part of the process that we as songwriters uh, and Mindy as our book writer were, were not fully part of was some of the tech. And <laughs> when we arrived for the final Part of it. We actually got to bring our son on the cruise. It was amazing right before opening. But we encountered just these bedraggled, exhausted, <laughs> sleep-deprived people, um, uh-huh. all the rest of the team. And thank goodness they were all uh, like wonderful, positive, optimistic, kind people <laughs> because they had to do all of the tech between, I think it was 1 and 6 a.m. Because as they're on the ship, there's other shows running at the same time. So the only time that it's available with the theater would be between one and six in the morning. Mm. Um, and I was talking, who was I talking to? David O, who was our music director. And he, t- <laughs> and he reminded me about this moment when in the middle of the show, there's the claw. Yes, machine. exactly. It's one of my favorite moments. Writing that song, I think was a huge highlight for me. <laughs> Um, it's brilliant thank you (laughs) oh and that that song also had another kind of a duh but really important note from John Lasseter which was um, the the lyric used to be um, when uh, when it descends in shining splendor all must heed the claw that's what we had written and okay. we sang it through and John was like, what? Heed? <laughs> Must heed? That sounds terrible. Who would say that? <laughs> and um, so we switched it to instead of all must heed the claw, it's all obey the claw, which is so much better. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's like um, 
it's like the it's like the note for uh, the classic one from Somewhere Over the Rainbow, right? Where the, it, it was something like somewhere on the other side of the rainbow, and someone came in and said, "Wait, it should just be over the rainbow," and it just simplified everything, and it flowed, and there were vowels. It was so much better. Um, so it was like that. But in that moment, with the claw set with all the little green men and all that stuff, when it was first unveiled on the ship, it was so glorious and beautiful that the whole team stood up and cheered. Like, <laughs> just they were so excited. <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh, my God, this set. Right. But the only people who did not sit up and cheer, stand up and cheer, were uh, David O, our music director, and Drew Dalzell, the sound designer. They looked at each other in horror <laughs> because the sound of the fans powering the claw set were so, so deafeningly loud that it was louder than the music. And they were like, oh my gosh, how, how will we ever handle this? And so the team devised an ingenious solution where they had to run a hose down through the uh, like a, down a stairwell and around and to the, another deck of the ship to a completely different floor so that they could have the fan to power and cool the set, not drown out the entire sound of the music. No small undertaking. I could imagine with all this, all the <laughs> portholes in the ship just cracking. Exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> so there were there were things like that, you know, weird, you know, somebody can't lift the costume. Um, Apparently, the people who played Rex and Ham just became incredibly buff because of the weight of the costumes. Um, wow. And they also had to be triple cast, right? You probably know about this, you know, where they have to, they would play, you know, uh, a character from Toy Story. You know, they would be Mr. Potato Head, and they would also have to play Pocahontas, and they would also have to play right. Mickey Mouse. You know? um, and it had to be exact, could not be any longer than I think 59 minutes or something. There had to be, a, or 55 minutes. It had to be, there had to be enough time for the cruise director to make a speech. Yes. And then the, the show had to be the exact length of time. Um, and we had one preview, one, which is, you know, not the way theater usually works. Usually you get to, at all. Have a, yeah, usually you get, uh, uh, I mean, even in very low budget situations, you'll have at least a few previews before you have to you know, freeze the show, lock it in place, and then open. But we had one. We had one performance. Uh, <laughs> yeah, welcome to the cruise line <laughs> industry. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and we pulled it off. Like, like, looking back at it now, I am still super proud of it. I love it. Um, I think the, the, the songs work really well. Uh, and I think we captured the spirit of the, of the show. I remember the... Um, the That's Why We're Here reprise, which is that moment where Buzz, having uh, discovered that he's only a toy and then he's strapped to the rocket and Woody is trying to rescue him and he's too full of despair to be rescued. And it's that sort of tricky, dramatic moment that goes from Buzz being full of despair and Woody cheering him up and then Buzz... Had, his spirits are lifted and he feels more determined and purposeful to get out of there and escape and go back to Andy. And 
then Woody, as he's describing how wonderful Buzz is, realizes that in the comparison he is not, and he droops into despair himself. That, like that, to do that in music and not have it be too heavy, that was the moment that took the most rewriting. And when you add music to a story, every moment where you put the music is way more momentous, right? It's heavier, it's got more gravitas. And so it's this, this balancing act where you have to keep enough lightness and balance while still having enough music in the show. And that was, uh, that was a moment where at first, it may have been the only uh, moment of possible conflict with John Lasseter when he, where he was sort of convinced that it should be one certain way. And we were saying, you know, you know theatrically, I don't think that'll work. And he's like, nope. And, and we said, okay, we'll, we'll do it. So we, we put it together the way he wanted and we performed it for him. And then to his credit, he watched it once and he immediately said, I was wrong. You guys are right. Do it your way. It's way better. <laughs> I defer to you. <laughs> right. And I think that is the mark of a really powerful leader who simultaneously is able to hold very strong opinions and have ownership and love for his story, but also to recognize when his team is, is correct. And I'm really proud of how, how that moment worked out. I think, uh, I think we did well. Uh, and without a doubt, Toy Story the Musical was a fantastic production, and it really illustrated a way for both of you to put your musical stamp on a very familiar brand where it kind of extends the universe of Toy Story but still has those essential familiar features. So I, I know you. for one, uh. I'd, I'd love to see it come about in another form in the future because uh, eight years on Disney Cruise Line wasn't quite enough. I think there's a whole wide audience that would really appreciate seeing it in other contexts. Thank you. Yes, I've I've always harbored that wish as well. Um, there was a time in 2008 where it was possible that we were going to do a shorter, bigger version of it in the Hyperion Theater. Right. Yeah, and that that sadly did not work out. Um, <clears throat> and there was also a possibility of doing Toy Story 2, um, which began and then did, did not finish the process of that. And as each Toy Story comes around, um, there's always you know, a little bit of, of hope and thought of, you know, what could we do next? Could we combine them? Could we take it to Broadway? Whatever. Yes. I think that that would be wonderful, and I, I have no idea if that's possible. But I'm glad to hear well, that it would be a positive in your world. <laughs> well, and hey, the way I see it is the world of Disney Plus and expanding content and reach for, uh, for millions of people. I think that is hopefully going to be a way of translating some of the musical productions that Disney has composed over the years to um, new audiences. So we shall see. That is a really good point. Yes. And just I, I would this, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, please. <laughs> We're both so polite. Um, the, the just this this story of unlikely friendship and obsolescence and these you know real issues. Um, I, it, it this story deserves to be told as many ways as it can. I think. 
Absolutely. Well, and you've also played a role in adding your musical influence to other popular brands and properties under the Walt Disney Company, including Tinkerbell, The Muppets, more recently Star Wars through Galaxy's Edge. Could you talk about how you've really uh, put your musical touch on not only these properties, but also in different contexts, uh, the Disney theme parks and in the case of Tinkerbell movies? Sure. Uh, There was a period of time where we were writing a lot for Disney and it was song by song by song for all of the, not all of them, but I think we wrote for four of the Tinkerbell Blu-ray movies. And the first one was Tinkerbell and the Lost Treasure. And this was the, um, basically the, the opening song. And we wrote, this was where all of that songwriter circle, many drafts, like really, really came in to be, to to be useful (laughs) in writing for film, which was, was new for me. Um, The writer really has a different role, right? And like in theater, really the writer is sort of in charge in some ways. Um, That's really not the case in theater. I mean, in, in film, in film, the director uh, is that absolute final say, and you, and there's so many, so many more moving parts, so many more people, so many more things to consider, um, <clears throat> and I don't think I've ever written so many drafts as we did for Tinkerbell songs, uh, but it was, <laughs> <laughs> but it was wonderful. We, we we wrote so many uplifting songs, so many songs about wings and flying and believing, and. You know, um, and just loved the experience. Uh, we actually you know, moved out to LA during all of this. We were working so much for Disney and it, it was helpful to be really close to be able to go in and have a meeting in five minutes. And <clears throat> this was a lot of work that we did with Matt Walker. Um, so Tinkerbell and the Lost Treasure, Tinkerbell and the Great Fairy Rescue, Tinkerbell and the Pixie Hollow Games, Tinkerbell and the Secret of the Wings, which I think was the most widely released one of all of those. Um, and then through all of the attraction one, we wrote some parade songs and we wrote for, um, Mickey and the magician and fantasy fair and the Muppets great moment in moments in history. And there were some assignments where something was being translated from Mandarin and then I'd have to write a lyric that said the same thing that it said in Mandarin, except in English, but using the same melody and the same rhythm and the same tracks. And just really interesting assignments that were very, very specific <laughs> over a period of years. Um, we got to collaborate with people like Joel McNeely, who just writes gorgeously. Um, oh, yeah. And that was a, lo- a long chapter. Uh, do you have any specific questions about those? Yeah, well, I guess on, on the Muppet front, because that was a really unique production. Unfortunately, it, it recently um, saw its last days at Magic Kingdom. But the notion yeah. of having the actual Muppet characters in the in the puppet form overseeing Liberty Square and and for your song to essentially be a way of bookending what was a really clever and satirical 
take on different mo- moments in American history. Thank you. Yes, it was so much fun to do that. I mean, to write for Sam the Eagle was one of my very favorite Muppets. <laughs> of course, I grew up with the, with the Muppets. Was so, so fun to just cap- capture his, his judgmental, imperious tone. Um, uh, I, yes, that was that was a blast. That was an absolute blast to write. I going to say, and that was a pretty quick process. That was one of the ones that was a lot of yes anding and a not, there were not a lot of rewrites for that. That was, that was pretty smooth, <laughs> pretty smooth sailing. Gotcha. Well, and I, I also want uh, you to share with listeners that I know you shared with me offline that for the song in August Cantina, was, what, is it correct that this was the first time that the electric violin was uh, incorporated into a piece of music for Disney theme park? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, I'm very, very excited about this. Um, I, uh, uh, Brendan and I are no longer together and I'm working with a fantastic new collaborator named Ryan O'Connell. And, um, I know him, um, through, well, known him for quite a while, but he was our music director and orchestrator, um, and, and now also has composed somewhat for, a huge passion project of mine, which is a musical called Ernest Shackleton Loves Me, which was uh, off-Broadway a couple mm-hmm. years ago and is now hopefully soon going to London. I hope, I hope, I hope. Um, and and that is the musical that I referred to earlier on when I said when we met Wade McCollum, who was our first Woody in Toy Story in that right. workshop, he plays Ernest Shackleton and all the other uh, male characters in Ernest Shackleton Loves Me which is this musical. And so I, I credit and thank Matt Olmos and everyone at Disney for bringing Wade to us because he is absolutely a dream. So in that musical, uh, Ryan O'Connell is our music director and orchestrator and uh, sometime composer as well. Uh, and we found that we write incredibly easily together, very well together. And so when I got a call from Matt Walker and uh, Yaron Spivak to audition for writing a song for Oga's Cantina, uh, I asked if I could bring Ryan on board to write it with me. And they said, yes, of course. And we wrote this song. It was just so much fun, like like fun in the same way that the Muppets are fun to write for, right? This was like a different world. And, uh, and the idea is that they want, they wanted um, hit songs from other worlds. So the lyrics were just gibberish, right? So the, so the challenge uh, for our lyric writing was <laughs> to go online and find the, um, the online gibberish generator, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> it <laughs> exists. Which really helped because it's actually hard to, to come up with varied um, and lang- you know, something that sounds like a real language um, just from your head. So having an outside source to pull from was super helpful. But so I'm in Seattle, he's in Burbank, he's teching a show, I'm driving my son to school and we're like, we're just writing on the phone, um, you know, like we tried to do in 2002 with Rachel Schenken, but now cell phones work really well. And so it, it was so fun and wonderful. And <clears throat> so we came up with this crazy song that's in like, that's in 11, um, most songs are in four or three. <laughs> so this is in a strange meter. And, um, <laughs> and sort of like, 
um, you know how Shaka Khan has her own name in her song? Right, uh, yes. And, you know, some rappers do that as well. <laughs> like, um, so this otherworldly diva, uh, whose name was Gaia, uh, says her, you know, she says her name in the song. Um, and so we, we submitted our, our idea. And uh, the only notes we were given is that they wanted some combination of Celtic and Middle Eastern. So mm, okay. <laughs> that's what we did. And um, so I sang and they put my voice through a weird filter so it would sound otherworldly. And uh, we wrote a rap sidekick part and Ryan did that part. And I played the Viper, which is my violin. And they just, they gave us a few notes and they recorded it um, with real drums and real bass, but they kept all of our parts. And it is that it was very important to me because you know not only am I entering a new a new era with a, with a new collaborator, but in all of the work I've ever done for Disney, they've always replaced my voice with someone else. And um, you know whether it's the woman from Celtic Woman who has a gorgeous voice, they were always terrific. Um, but I always had a secret or not so secret yearning to have my voice on something too. So this was the first time. Um, so you can hear me singing, you can hear Ryan rapping, and you can hear me playing electric violin. Uh, and it is, it is the first time also that a Viper, that an electric violin is on a Disney song. Now that's a, that's a real feat and a fun fact <laughs> that I think can be thrown into Disney trivia nights. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yes. What an honor uh, having a, a significant impact in an other in a space that is already quite popular and quite significant in the Galaxy's Edge area. Oh my God! Yeah. Well, I mean, all of this, everything that we've been talking about today, it's all been such an honor, right? To be to be part of the iconic Toy Story, you know, to be part of the iconic Star Wars um, canon. I'm pinching myself still <laughs> about these things. Um, just to be to work at that level and to have the resources of Disney behind something um, and to reach so many people, right? Um, I have had success as an indie musician and uh, as a theater writer and performer, but the the vast reach of Disney, you know, exceeds by far the number of people who have ever heard anything that I've done. So I am continuing to be gobsmacked, thrilled, honored, uh, and extremely pleased <laughs> to have this opportunity. Fantastic. Well, as we conclude uh, with every interview, I ask all of my guests some common questions that are under the Disney sphere. So it's personal opinions and perspectives. So it's a segment that I call Ask My Questions and Get Some Answers. And this is, uh, that's a nod to Ariel from the Little Mermaid, of course, but mm -hmm. uh, this includes some three standard music-related questions, two standard book-related questions, and a random Disney question, and it's all about kind of getting your take on what about Disney speaks to you. So, Valerie, are you ready? <laughs> that was quite a build-up. Yes, yes, of course. So let's start off with music question. So growing up, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most? That is a tie, I think, between Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid. Ah, oh, the Renaissance era. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
And I was not a, a small child during this time, but um, but I didn't really, I wasn't like a, a huge Disney fanatic when I was little. I think it was when I was older and you know became a more of a connoisseur of lyrics. That <laughs> um, yeah, but those are those are two favorites of mine. How about you? Right. How about me? Oh, you're turning the tables. I'm not sure if I'm prepared. <laughs> I, I I loved Toy Story growing up. That was that was and still was my favorite film under the Disney umbrella. So I listened to that soundtrack constantly. Making the opportunity to, to chat with you and learn about Toy Story musical quite an honor as well. Uh, I also love Beating the Beast too. That one I could listen to endlessly. Yes. Okay, so for your second music related question, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Well. Let's see, knowing that I was going to come on this podcast, um, the some of the songs from our Toy Story have been in my head, like like One Toy, which might be my favorite song from that show. Um, but let's see, something that I did not write that's been in my head. I'm going to say a song from Toy Story 4, which I saw recently. Um, the, the song about... Uh, I won't let you throw yourself away. The Randy Newman song, where, yes. <laughs> and it's so it's like it's wonderfully catchy and it's so simple, and I find myself just humming it sometimes. And I also love how, like they have been able to handle a, a very thorny topic and the topic of suicide, and made it into this very upbeat, lighthearted song and i think it's done in such an elegant way and i just love it that's now that's a very deep way of, of viewing it but yeah you're right it hits on some of those topics and it has that kind of signature randy newman quality of that where the lyrics are constantly repeating themselves and it's kind of drilled in your in your head yeah. in a very <laughs> wonderful way right yes <laughs> exactly yeah i mean that that spork is uh indefatigable he will not stop trying, <laughs> trying to kill himself so yeah we need to, we need the lyrics over and over and over and that's a wonderful reason for repetition absolutely <laughs> third music question for you is what disney film do you feel has the most underrated music huh um the most underrated music well which disney films have low rated music I don't know. I guess perhaps <laughs> it, we, we could talk about a lot of them, but I guess per, perhaps not your Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast one that's commonly in the discourse or conversation. Right, right, right. right. Um, well, I think people need to, uh, <laughs> I think that the Tinkerbell series <laughs> has a lot of uh, excellent <laughs> music. People have not heard enough. Um, if you don't have a Blu-ray or a, a, a little girl, a uh, who is a Tinkerbell fan, a lot of people haven't heard that music. And in addition to our own songs, there's a bunch of other ones that I think are are very well done. Yes, and yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And I would also add, because you made reference to her earlier, um, Jonathan Brooke, who actually oh, wrote yes. the song for the Return to Neverland film, The I'll Try. Yes, I which had... Is okay. Yes, I, she is I was just going to my... say, it's awesome. Yeah, she's one of my absolute favorites. And there was a, um, 
an amazing, thrilling moment for me because I've been a fan of hers for so long since she had a band called The Story and I have every album of hers and I just think she's brilliant. When we were in LA for one of the first meetings with Matt Walker, he took us to see her in concert and meet her. And I felt like such a VIP because I was being brought by the, you know, the Disney executive to meet one of my idols. <laughs> and it was an amazing night. Okay. So on the book question front, can you um, share an example of a recent Disney book you've read, or at least a, a notable Disney book in your uh, reading history? Sure. Let's see. I, I'm going to reach way back into my history, into um, my childhood. I mean, I remember just loving those little golden books. I had a whole collection of those. And it was my first introduction to a lot of the Disney stories. And it was me learning to read. And I just remember the spines of them and the, those stories. That's where I read Dumbo and Bambi and Pinocchio and the ugly duckling, uh, three little pigs. I like that whole range of stories and it just, it was a huge part of my growing up. Fantastic. If you could write a book, maybe about your Disney experience, songwriting experiences, if you could write a Disney related book on any topic, what would it be about? Ooh, a Disney related book about my experience as a writer for Disney. Is that what you mean? Sure. Yeah. As a, as a writer or something that interests you related to Disney as a brand. But yeah, certainly your own experiences yeah. that were applicable. Something about how many endless, infinitely varied ways there are to inspire and find the fun, find the heart, find all of that in, in Topics that keep coming up through Disney, right? Believing and flying and you know, <laughs> follow your heart. And, you know, all of these things that could become cheesy or <clears throat> uh, overused in some way. But there's always, a, there's always a new twist. There's always a new way to, to express those things. And I love the idea of exploring that variety in some way. That would be all. Yeah, I like the notion of that. Your title could be Faith, Trust, Pixie Dust, and an Electric Violin. <laughs> yes, excellent. We'll start tomorrow. There you go. <laughs> so for your random general Disney question, Valerie, can you name a Disney property or brand that you would love to create original music for? Ooh. And, and it doesn't matter if music has already been created for it? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Uh, then, yes, I'm going to say Finding Nemo. That movie was such a huge part of my son's early life. It became this favorite for my son Moe's when he was super little. And we must have watched it a hundred times. And it's such a beautiful story. And I am very, very drawn to the stories about parents and children and I, I just love it. It's a huge, huge favorite. And if I could get the chance to write songs for Finding Nemo, oh, it would be incredible. Very nice. Yeah, I know. I think that property really could lend further music because there's the great 
uh, Finding Nemo musical at um, Animal Kingdom in right. Disney World. And the, the Lopez's. The Lo- um, exactly. Mm-hmm. Did Frozen. So I think, you know, build upon that, like Finding Dory or more Finding Nemo tunes. Let's make it happen. <laughs> more is more, I say. Indeed. Yes. Well, I've so enjoyed talking with you, Valerie. I want to make sure that we have an opportunity if any listeners are interested in following your work or getting in touch with you. Could you share with them some resources or websites that they can check out? Yes, absolutely. And Brett, it's been a total delight talking with you too. Thank you for uh, bringing back memories and uh, and the wide-ranging, interesting conversation. Um, you can find me at my website, which is, uh, it's in the midst of some changes, but it is valvagoda.com. So V-A-L-V-I-G-O-D-A.com. And you can also email me valvagoda at gmail.com. Fantastic. Well, I feel like I, I feel like a lot of memories came about for me too through talking with you, th- through thinking <laughs> about Toy Story the musical, and um, as I shared with you offline, having um, seen you talk about the musical at the D twenty three Expo back in two thousand nine, and certainly oh, the right. lasting legacy of <laughs> of all of your work. It's mm-hmm. you know it it has an impact on people's lives. It brings joy. So really appreciate you taking this time. Oh. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your words. And uh, it, it was such a pleasure to work on that show. The entire team was like family. And I loved it. And I continue to move forward and uh, feel very lucky to be part of the Disney family. Wonderful. Really appreciate Valerie for coming on the show. It was such a fun time talking with her and learning more about her career. I would highly encourage you to check out her website to see a sampling of her work and definitely go on YouTube to see her perform the electric violin. You'll be able to also listen to some of the tunes from the different Disney theme park and film productions. And if you search, you can also find Toy Story the Musical on YouTube as well. So thanks again, Valerie. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.